Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the E-Squared podcast series, hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. In this episode, we'll join Shook Chair Madeline McDonough and Shook Pro Bono Partner and Director Scott Fishman as they discuss impact litigation. Let's join them. Welcome to E-Squared. This is a podcast series examining ESG litigation risks. I'm your host, Madeline McDonough, the chair of Shook, Hardy & Bacon. In this series, we explore various topics in the framework of environmental, social, and governance, commonly known as ESG. We have discussed environmental and governance issues in previous episodes with Shook Partners. Today, we dive into the social aspects and how companies can make meaningful advances. I'm joined by my partner, Scott Fishman, who is the director of Shook's Pro Bono Program. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. We are starting to see companies be more intentional about their corporate footprints, whether that's choosing their vendors, their supply chain processes, and in general, just how they conduct business. But for many law firms, purposeful activity is revealed through their pro bono projects. Before we unpack that, Scott, could we dive into your personal background a bit? We're coming up on nearly one year with the firm since you joined us, Scott. You practiced at two large law firms before Shook, and you practiced corporate litigation before moving to pro bono work full time. Scott, so that our listeners get a flavor of your philosophy, can you explain your move to pro bono full time? So before I was a lawyer, I was a teacher. And uh, after college, I joined Teach for America and taught fourth and fifth grade in Washington, D.C. public schools. Uh, perhaps the hardest decision I ever had to make was leaving the classroom to attend law school. And perhaps the hardest thing I ever had to do was relay that decision to my students. I taught both grades in the same classroom and my fourth graders would loop the next year to become my fifth grader. So I had to tell them that that wasn't going to going to happen and that uh, I was going to you know, use this opportunity to pursue one of my other dreams. Uh, I told them, though, that I would never forget all that I had learned from them uh, during my experience teaching. And I would somehow, you know, find a way to use my platform as a lawyer to impact uh, communities like theirs. Uh, now, of course, three years later, I find myself as a commercial litigator representing energy companies. Um, but, you know, early on, I demonstrated uh, a genuine interest in doing pro bono work uh, without a formal pro bono program per se at my first firm. I took on pro bono cases as a summer associate. I, in fact, as I got back as an associate, um, while on a commercial litigation trial team, I still managed to contribute 100 hours uh, each year to pro bono matters. Uh, I also participated on some of the firm's committees as a young associate, which were excellent opportunities to get to know the law firm's leadership. Now, unbeknownst to me, a few years into my practice, the firm decided to create this position for the very first time because uh, its pro bono performance was uh, lackluster and they opted to hire somebody internal. And the person who had helped recruit me to the firm, uh, who knew my background as a teacher, who knew my genuine interest in pro bono, and uh, who knew that I took an interest in helping the firm succeed by joining these committees, uh, uh, convinced uh, leadership to give me the right of first refusal when they offered this position. Uh, I did not refuse, and uh, the rest is history. We all have our passions, Scott. Clearly yours is pro bono work, and we are lucky to have you, which leads us to our topic today on ESG. It would seem that law firms have an opportunity to make a real difference with their pro bono projects. 
Yes, yes, yes. Law firms can make a difference through their pro bono programs. Uh, let me start by saying that the need is so high right now, starting in the 1980s when federal funding for legal aid was cut dramatically. Legal aid groups across the country uh, have found it impossible to meet the needs, uh, the legal needs of, of the low-income community. And add to the fact that the wealth gap has only deepened since then, I'm sad to report that an astonishing eight out of 10 people who seek help from legal aid are actually turned down, uh, not because they don't qualify, but because there's just a lack of resources. Now, obviously the answer to that problem um, is to increase funding for legal aid, but I would say that the private bar has a role to play. And while it might seem like our efforts are just a drop in the bucket compared to what is needed, try telling that to a family who avoids an eviction and remains in their home as a result of your pro bono work. Uh, or tell that to a refugee who obtains asylum on a pro bono case. Um, you know, or uh, to a domestic violence survivor who sec is, secures a protective order. Um, or a veteran who is awarded much needed uh, monthly benefits. We can make a difference, um, and our legal aid partners certainly need our help. In fact, as we are learning, ESG transparency, as in this case pro bono projects, can impact the profitability of a company, and it dovetails with the law firm's overall business strategy? Sure. Uh, if we're asking ourselves, does it make sense for a law firm to do pro bono work, and does it benefit uh, by doing so, the answer is undoubtedly yes. Uh, let's be frank. Uh, we are not in the business of selling widgets. We're in the business um, of selling time, particularly the time of our very skilled lawyers. So anything that we can do as a law firm that makes our lawyers better at what they do and more connected with one another uh, will make our firm stronger at delivering services to all of our clients, including our commercial clients. So with that in mind, uh, there is no doubt that pro bono can be used to offer excellent skill development opportunities, particularly to junior and mid-level uh, lawyers. Um, and it also, you know, quite frankly, allows lawyers of different practice groups and different offices to work with each other, um, you know, who would not ordinarily work with each other on their during, as a result of their commercial practice. Um, it also provides a platform for the firm to take a big swing on high-profile large impact matters, and it provides a platform for individual lawyers to, you know, make uh, to improve their reputation in the community as lawyers. So all of that is is kind of improving what we do and making our lawyers feel more connected to each other. And I believe that that goes to the bottom line of, of what we're trying to accomplish. How does a law firm choose the kinds of pro bono projects that it wants to take on? And what are the most common ones? Our attorney's interests uh, are the guiding light uh, when it comes to figuring out what we want to do. Um, and of course, there are some parameters uh, that we have to put in place. Uh, for example, we've got to adhere to the common, uh, commonly accepted definition of, of qualifying pro bono work, and we've got to avoid conflicts, and we've got to make sure we have the staffing capacity to take on a particular matter, and we want to make sure that we work with trusted community partner organizations that have a good reputation for providing solid training and ongoing support when needed. Um, but other than that, you know, rather than me determining what I think lawyers should do and what's a good cause and what's what's not worth our time, uh, I let them choose our path and choose their own path. 
Um, there are certainly so many options. Um, now, historically, uh, as to you know what's most popular uh, amongst the different topics and subject matters, I, I would say that fluctuates from firm to firm, and it even fluctuates within the same firm from time to time. Historically at Shook, I'd say that we, uh, you know, the biggest slice of the pie, if you would, um, would be our 1983 prisoners' rights claims in federal court. Um, I would also say that we we do a lot of appointed family court cases in Jackson County, Missouri, um, which usually involve uh, termination of parental rights or abuse and neglect uh, cases. Um, we've done bunches of adoptions and guardianships. Uh, we've done bunches of asylum representation and other immigration matters across the country. And we've also done a bunch of uh, LGBTQ plus advocacy work, uh, primarily uh, in our name through our name change clinic, the Affirmation Project. So um, recently, I'd say the some other popular programs that we launched within the last year uh, would be our, our veterans uh, advocacy efforts, um, assisting survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence through uh, protective orders and research um, and advocacy. Um, and uh, quite frankly, we have a growing practice now with respect to our small business transactional and regulatory practice. Um, you know, it's the smallest sliver of the pie with respect to the number of lawyers at Shook, um, but they too want to do pro bono work and some of them want to do pro bono work within their uh, field of expertise. So I've been able to get, for example, uh, trademark and copyright work for them uh, and uh, pri- data, data privacy work and um, employment work and even FDA regulatory work. So that's uh, been a, a fairly popular program within that um, community of, of the firm. As I understand it, a lot of law firms are working on impact litigation. Can you explain what that is and do you have any advice for firms that are thinking about getting involved with this type of strategic pro bono work? Sure. Most projects um, involve direct legal services work. You know, when a low-income individual or family needs assistance on a matter such as a housing eviction or a public benefits appeal, undoubtedly those cases are incredibly important for their clients. They are in many ways life-changing. However, law firms can also take even bigger swings in cases that involve some sort of systemic problem facing our community, uh, cases that make an even larger impact, hence the name impact litigation. Sometimes these cases involve the same types of issues that, in, that are involved in direct legal services work, but it involves a much larger group of people being impacted. A good example of that would be a case on behalf of tenants throughout a city uh, with a common, very bad acting landlord. Um, Sometimes these cases involve local, statewide, or even nationwide civil rights litigation, Um, and they can touch on a host of issues uh, ranging from voting rights to human trafficking to criminal justice reform and more. The idea is that law firms are uniquely situated with their human capital, with their financial resources, and their vast experience in large-scale civil litigation to partner up with civil rights organizations to take on those those larger swings that those civil rights groups and those legal aid groups find challenging to take on by themselves. Um, Now, advice for firms that are considering going down this road with their pro bono practice. Um, I would say, you know, the one 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 tip is to bring together 
key stakeholders in your firm to develop a strategy uh, around what types of impact work may be uh, on uh, may be available or off limits uh, due to the the uh, firm's reputation or um, legal or positional or business conflicts. Um, I'd say to make an investment both of time and money, uh, plant seeds in the community with leading partner organizations and let them know that you're interested in going this direction with the practice. Uh, this might mean charitable contributions to those, to those particular organizations, um, getting some partners on the board of some of those groups, um, and having frequent in-depth conversations with their staff about what kind of potential litigation opportunities might be available or coming uh, soon in the pipeline. Uh, I'd say ensure that your internal policies uh, support attorneys doing this type of work. These cases are often the same size of your largest commercial cases, and they will require the same time of your lawyers. Uh, make sure that they are recognized and credited accordingly before you accept the case. Um, talk about potential litigation costs ahead of time. Uh, these cases, because they are very big and last a long time, often come with uh, price tags attached. Um, lots of discovery, lots of experts, um, depositions, travel sometimes. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, online data, um, uh, hosting. So there's a lot of, a lot of costs that could, that could come attached to these cases. Now, a lot of times they're hard to predict, especially at the early stages of, of a case, but it's good to have an honest discussion about those costs and the firm could even help create a budget for them so that you're, you're not blindsided later. I'd say staff the cases appropriately because they're so big. Don't understaff them. I'd also say don't overstaff them. Um, having too many cooks in the kitchen can actually cause uh, less efficiency. Uh, just treat the case as you would any other major litigation and staff it accordingly. And then I'd say lastly, understand that your, your co-counsel at the civil rights groups or the legal aid groups care very deeply about their cases um, they are often the substantive experts on the matter, even if uh, we as, as large law firms might be the experts on massive civil litigation generally. When it comes to civil rights uh, case law and, and strategy, uh, those organizations are usually the substantive experts. And you might need to humble yourselves and let them lead the way um, on, on that strategy. Um, certainly, they expect that, that you and the firm are going to be as equally committed as they are to the case. Um, and they would be really disappointed to, to hand over the reins on such a litigation and not have the firm keep to its commitment or, or not staff it appropriately or not be willing to um, you know, pay for the, the cost. So they're expecting equal commitment. Um, I, I think those tips are going to help you, you know, navigate impact litigation if you're interested in going that way. I know from my own personal experience and in speaking with my partners, pro bono work is often life-changing. Sometimes it's the most rewarding work lawyers ever do. When we come back, we'll hear from Scott about one of his favorite pro bono cases. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science, and technology sectors. Whether you're crafting an ESG policy or resolving claims through negotiation or litigation, Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end -end support. 
We're back with Shook partner Scott Fishman, who is the director of our pro bono services. I've heard from so many of my partners about their favorite cases, which often are their pro bono matters. Do you have a favorite story that you'd want to share? So I have lots of favorite stories when it comes to pro bono. Uh, it's really hard picking one favorite. I, one story that always warms my heart is, uh, is Erica. Um, er- Erica and her husband built a bakery business uh, back in the late 80s in Brooklyn, and they specialized in rugelach. Um, and for those listeners out there who have not had the awesome experience of becoming familiar with rugelach, um, it is an old uh, Jewish baked item um, with origins back into Poland and Hungary. It's a, kind of a twisted pastry, absolutely delicious. And uh, Erica and her husband had perfected a recipe for rugelach. Now, uh, unfortunately, without their knowledge, one of their employees was running a drug operation out of their bakery. And Erica's husband actually got swept up in an investigation despite the fact that he was completely innocent. Uh, Lawyers at my first firm represented her husband. uh, And long story short, we were able to resolve that issue entirely. Erica then became the most appreciative pro bono client, perhaps in pro bono history. Uh, Every year at the holiday time, we would receive a box of Rogelach as a a gift. And one year, uh, several years down the line, I decided, why not give her some business? Um, The firm had about 75 incoming summer associates, and I was asked to present to them. And what better way uh, to do that and introduce these summer associates to pro bono work by catering the event with a pro bono client's food? So I called her up really excited and, and I said, hey, um, I'm willing to, to you know, pay for, for Rugluck for 75 summer associates, maybe a, you know, a couple pieces each so they can, they can taste the different flavors. N- not only did Erica refuse our payment, on the day of the event, she arrives with her husband carrying bags upon bags on each arm. And I take a look at that and I'm puzzled and I and I ask her what in the world is all of this is this all a rugelach and, and she said Scott you know I went onto your website and I saw that you have 450 lawyers in your New York office I figured they want some rugelach too so I brought a few for everybody <laughs> that that's Erica um, she just was so so sweet so appreciative of the work that we did because Quite honestly, we we their their business would probably have gone down uh, in its entirety had had that legal issue not been resolved. But seriously, um, the the benefits paid for years on end. <laughs> Any final thoughts on encouraging law firms to engage in pro bono and tying it to the firm's ESG plan? Well, I'd say drawing upon my earlier comments. Um, about why it makes sense to do pro bono from a business perspective. Um, I want to leave the audience with this point. While that's true, all those points about the business case for doing pro bono and why it makes sense and why uh, it's advantageous for law firms to do pro bono, why it's advantageous for lawyers to do pro bono, I don't do pro bono and Shook doesn't support pro bono in the way that it does simply because our lawyers and our firm 
benefits from doing so. Uh, we believe strongly in pro bono for, for two reasons. One, we believe we have an obligation to do this work. Any person uh, who is feeling like doing a good deed for the community can help clean up our parks or feed the homeless. But only a lawyer can actually go into court and provide legal services for someone who can't afford it. So in a way, if we don't do it as lawyers, who will? So we believe we have an obligation to do it. And the second, reiterating a, uh, reiterating a point uh, that was made earlier in the podcast, we have incredible legal aid organizations in every state, in every community uh, around the country, and their job is to deliver pro bono legal services to those in need. But unfortunately, most people, the vast majority of people who ask for their help and who qualify for their services are turned away due to a lack of resources. We desperately need more federal funding for legal aid, but in the meantime, firms like Shook must step up, and that's why we do. If the private bar does its job, we can't solve the, the justice gap problem by ourselves, but we can help reduce it, and we could, we could help relieve the pressure that's currently on the backs of the legal aid community uh, to, to bridge that, that justice gap. That's why we do it. Thanks for your time today, Scott. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed our series of ESG podcasts. Past episodes cover topics such as cultural investigations, climate control and energy issues, the right to disconnect, and supply chain issues. If you are just finding us now, we have previous ESG podcasts on the law.com platform and also on the Shook website. For more information, please go to the Shook website at shb.com. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode in the E-Squared podcast series, hosted on law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm Scott Ferguson. Thanks for listening. For more legal analysis and insights, please visit law.com.